And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the Thursday edition of The Real Investment Show. Second best day of the week, of course, as uh, Michael Leibwich joins us. And uh, be talking a little bit about the uh, outlook coming up. Um, maybe a pretty drastic change coming up here to, well, what everybody thought was going on might be changing. We're going to get into that this morning. Um, of course, you know, last night, of course, the Republican uh, presidential uh, debate last night. And of course, uh, President uh, well, former President Trump, not there. He skipped it. When you're leading the polls at 50 percent, you don't debate. There's no upside to debating, right? And this is a very interesting thing that goes on. It's like, oh, we have to have these debates. If you're well ahead in the polls, there is absolutely no upside to the debate. So it's better off that you skip it. So he skipped it anyway. So there was, there was a debate. You may not know this, but there was actually a, a debate last night. Ron DeSantis, of course, uh, Vic Swamy, um, you know, the whole, the whole crew up there uh, debating. Again, they are so far down in the polls right now. Um, I'm not sure anything's going to help them. Uh, at this point. I don't know what's going to change. I mean, the only thing that's going to change dramatically is uh, for Donald Trump to drop out of the race entirely. And I mean, that's still a possibility, I guess, uh, with all the other stuff that's going on. We'll see. But X that, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of hope for any of these other candidates to catch up meaningfully uh, anytime soon. So uh, that was all on last night. Of course, the massive full moon uh, this morning, which means crazy stuff always happens. Brent's here this morning, crazy. (laughs) And I'm going to say it again. It is September the 28th. Stop putting Halloween costume (laughs) decorations in lawn. I came out this morning. My entire street is lit up now with orange and pink and purple and black lights. I'm like, come on, it's September 28th. We're not even October yet. So anyway, got to get into the spirit early, I guess. Well, speaking of spirit early, market's been pretty scary lately. That's uh, something we'll be talking about this morning as well. Um, you know, one of the things that you know we're going to be talking about this morning with Mike is you know what drives inflation and what drives um, you know um, you know the overall economy long term, right? And the impact of that and historically what's happened and everybody's expecting a this time is different type scenario yet there's really no evidence that this time is any different than than any previous time i'll give you a good example of this um, if we take a look at, at oil right now this has been one of the kind of the headline drivers of of the markets as of late just the last few days in particular talking about these uh, rising oil prices oil prices certainly uh, have been rising here lately on concerns about supply. Of course, we have a, a big reduction in the uh, reserve, the uh, SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. That's certainly problematic. But again, if we go back through history, and this is always important is to review history, is that we go back and we can even look at this on a 10-year basis. And if we go back and look at this, uh, and look at oil prices over a 10-year basis. You know, there are times where oil prices spike and every time and even go back 20 years. If you remember back in 2008, we were talking about peak oil and then we didn't have peak oil anymore. We had too much oil. Um, And this is always the issue with commodity markets 
in particular is that there is a driver and a function for commodities over time, and it's not necessarily the supply-demand imbalance. It is what market makers are doing on the NYMEX because what drives prices generally is what's happening in the trading market, not actually in the supply and demand market. But nonetheless, um, if we go back and look out through history, we've had plenty of these periods where we have these big spikes in oil prices, and we always believe this time is different. It wasn't just so long ago that we were talking about zero oil. Remember this? Just a couple of years ago, we had negative oil prices, right? That had never happened before, and everybody was convinced this time was different, right? And it wasn't. And then we had oil prices go surging back you know, to uh, over $100 a barrel. Well, now this time is different because we're now over $100 a barrel. Oil and this is when Goldman was coming out saying oil prices have to go to $300 a barrel. Well, that wasn't it. And of course, then we slid down to $70 a barrel. And so now we've risen back to 90 after having a very long downtrend, getting things really oversold, really beaten up in terms of oil prices. Oil prices have risen here a bit. Now we're back to the same nonsense about oil prices have to go to the room. This time is different. It's a super cycle, whatever it is. Markets move in directions for a small period of time. They get really overbought. Everybody's optimistic. And then something changes. Everybody gets very negative, very pessimistic. Then something changes and we get back to very optimistic again. Markets cycle over time. Just remember that. Here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, let's talk about something that we've been really kind of discussing here for a while. We've touched this on this a few times. Let's talk about volatility in the market, the, the VIX index. We have been talking about just the last couple of weeks that volatility was very, very suppressed and that we were likely going to get an uptick in volatility. And, and again, because of, of September being particularly a weak month for the markets, wouldn't be surprising to see an uptick in volatility, weaker prices in September. In fact, we just wrote an article on this uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago on the website. Uh, we've seen that. We've seen a very nice uptick in the volatility index coinciding with this recent sell-off in the markets. Importantly, though, going back and again, as, as, as with everything, and again, just like with oil prices, so beware of the headlines, right? We're, you know, this time is different. It's not different. Volatility index is now back to very, very overbought levels, just as we've seen in previous movements in the volatility index. Every time we have these moves like this, the volatility index gets very overbought. And my program is not working for me this morning. There we go. Um, and when we get very overbought, that typically tends to be both the top in the, the move in volatility, but also the bottom in the stock market. So we're getting to a very oversold condition in the markets. We're getting to a very overbought condition in the volatility index. This typically coincides with a reversal in the index itself. So again, we've had a lot of selling pressure over the last week in particular. And again, as we've been saying, is that there's a lot of you know, headlines getting thrown out there about the market. This is pretty much quarter-end rebalancing issues. And again, you have about 20, 25% of all the big fund managers have their fiscal year end in September. Now in December, we're going to have about 30% of fund managers all have their fiscal year end. So again, this is why in September, uh, in December, we have another sell-off in the first couple of weeks of December. 
as, as they do their year-end distribution. So again, that's a lot of this that's going on right now. Again, volatility has risen, but it still remains fairly low from a historical perspective, but there's no real driver or catalyst at this moment to talk about having another type of spike like we had back in March. Uh, during the bank crisis. So again, we're probably to the limits of this current move in the volatility index, probably near a bottom. And if you take a look at sentiment indicators in particular, they're getting pretty negative here as well. So again, as is always the case in the markets, when markets are correcting, nobody wants to buy anything, right? It's like, oh my gosh, markets are going down. You know, this is terrible. They're just going to keep going down. But this is when you get the best opportunities to put money to work in the markets. Again, we always want to do what feels the worst generally. You want to sell when markets are extremely overbought. You want to buy when they're very oversold. You have those environments occur on a regular basis, yet we do exactly the opposite. We tend to buy stocks that are overbought, sell stocks that are oversold. So again, you know, it's just a bit of navigation here in the markets, but there's a lot of signals here that suggest that we're likely near the bottom of this current correction. Uh, the same thing goes in the bond market as well, but on a more extreme basis. But we're getting to that point that likely we're about to see a, a move in the other direction for these markets. Doesn't mean permanently, right? We're not talking about the next great bull market. We're talking about maybe a couple of months where you have decent price action in the markets and some opportunity to make some money. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning when we come back from the break. We'll pick up with Michael Leibowitz. We'll talk a little bit about the Fed here in terms of their view on inflation and are they about to walk themselves into a trap? We'll talk about that right after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Real Science Roberts. Michael Leibowitz joining me as well. So tomorrow, we will get a revision to GDP, and it's likely going to be fairly negative. And this is going to really kind of put into better context just this whole idea of how strong the economy has been and this idea about, you know, higher interest rates and, and even you know, this idea of, of, you know, economic growth in terms of earnings estimates. Earnings estimates have been very strong. They've been upgraded lately in particular on expectations of a much stronger economic environment. Now, tomorrow, though, we're going to see this revision to GDP. And there's been this one anomaly, and we've written about this recently, and Mike and I have talked about it, is this discrepancy between GDI, which is the gross domestic income, and GDP. And your income and your product cannot differentiate to a large degree because they are part and parcel of each other. In other words, without the income, you can't have the product. So this is, this is why when you have these big divergences, and historically we've seen previously big divergences between GDI and GDP, the current one right now is the largest on record. And importantly, though, has always preceded a recession. 
because GDP always catches down to GDI. And so there's something to kind of think about this, you know, recently uh, interest rates have been coming up here over the course of the last, you know, week or so. And, and a lot of this really looks like a lot of technical, uh, you know, rebalancing quarter end year, fiscal year end type movements in markets because it's been kind of exaggerated here over the last day. So it looks it looks in particular and there's been no news to really drive it. So this really looks more of a of a technical issue with rebalancing quarter end fiscal year end issues rather than market issues. But nonetheless, interest rates going up in the headline consensus is, well, this is because expectations of inflation are going up because of oil prices. And that may be the case in the very, very short term. But as I, we just talked about, um, oil prices are extremely overbought. You're going to have a correction in oil prices, and then that's going to take away that whole argument when that occurs. So then what's the debate going to be? The problem with the economy, though, is that ultimately inflation, interest rates are all tied to economic growth. And if economic growth isn't as strong as everybody expects, and again, I don't know exactly what this revision will look like tomorrow. There's estimates all over the board. We'll see what it looks like. But if economic growth isn't as strong as everybody expects, because remember, we're looking at rear view data. And, and so far, the Fed's whole moves has been based upon this lagging data. They've been looking at this lagging data coming in going, well, employment's stronger than it looks. Economic growth has been, you know, has been strong. So we need to keep hiking rates. Well, all of a sudden, that may not be the case. And the question is, Mike, is, is has the Fed potentially been walking themselves into a trap that may be about to spring close. Absolutely, and the Fed know the Fed sort of knows that too. They uh, they know they understand their capabilities at forecasting economic growth, and they've talked about it plenty of times. And the number of times that Powell warns about the lag effect, you know, if you go back and look at the uh, press conference. Uh, last week, I bet he must have said the lag effect 20 times. So I think they understand the trap that they're in. But I, I think what's important, what what what's most important to them is to get inflation down to 2%. And they make that brutally clear that they will do whatever it takes. So I think they're stuck in this trap of having to talk a big game, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Cash Carry was on the wire yesterday saying rates may have to go much higher. Powell keeps saying higher for longer. We're not even thinking of cutting rates. And then they get their uh, Muppet Jamie Dimon to come out, the chairman, the uh, CEO of JP Morgan, to say rates could go to 7%. Mm -hmm. They can't go to 7%. Right. That you got major crises way before 7%. So I think, you know, the Fed's MO is they sort of understand the trap they're in. And believe me, I think they would like to lower rates at the first sign of trouble. But in order to do that, they need to get inflation down. So if they can convince the markets that inflation, that they will do whatever it takes to get inflation, I think that's how they think they're going to get out of this trap. Yeah. And by the way, Cash Carry is never right about anything that he says. You know, I, I think, you know, I think that they elected Cash Carry to this position. He's kind of like the Muppet. He's like, okay, we're going to send this guy out to say everything that's entirely wrong just to throw the market off balance. Because <laughs> so, right. we've written, you and I have both written articles over the years, numerous times of stuff that he says that makes absolutely no sense. But uh, it's always interesting. 
And we've both been blocked by him on Twitter. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, truth I forgot hurts. exactly what it was that got both of us blocked, but I'm sure it was truthful. Yeah. Um, it was, it was know, over so, the whole it was over. the. the I got blocked over the whole issue that the Fed's QE program does not lift asset prices, <laughs> which is what he said. And of course, right. there's a clear correlation between the two and how it works in the monetary system. But that's why I got blocked. <laughs> so. Yeah, I can't remember why. I'm sure I deserved it. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's you know, he's too easy to pick on. Yeah. But but I think what they're trotting out this not only higher for longer but we'll do whatever it takes we'll bring fed funds to six seven eight percent is ludicrous they know it's ludicrous jp morgan will be out of business if they do that jp morgan is not going to say things like that they are just using the banks using themselves to to trot out this message that they will get inflation down and i, I they're right In, inflation is an anomaly we had massive supply line dis disruptions and unbelievable demand side uh, influences. Right. Both, you know, we've talked about this, but they're, you know, fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus and behavioral changes. None of those are permanent and they're, they're a lot longer lasting than anyone has thought, you know, ourselves, the Fed pretty much every economic forecaster. But at the end of the day, they are one time in nature, whether it lasts another year, whether it lasts another three days. You know, again, it's hard to go out on a limb and try to predict that because it's just been much longer than expected. But like you said, unless something has really changed in the way the economy works, which, you know, as hard as we look, it's hard to find anything. Mm -hmm then the Fed will eventually get rates down. Unfortunately, it's probably going to be because of a recession. There'll be some sort of crisis. And I know that sounds extreme and, you know, frightening, but there's a crisis every time the Fed raises rates. So, you know, it, it it's important to put cr the word crisis, which sounds like a big deal, into perspective. A crisis can be a bad crisis if the Fed does not, it waits too long. And a crisis can be not a big deal, like we saw in March with the banking crisis, that the Fed reacts really quickly. Mm -hmm. So my guess is the Fed understands the fragility in the system and assuming they can get inflation down, will try to act pretty quickly to quell any type of financial crisis. Right. And again, you know, talking about crisis, I mean, you, you, we, you know, when you say the word crisis, everybody immediately reverts back to 2008, right? Um, because that's in most people's wheelhouse of their age, and they don't really remember what happened, you know, in the 90s, and they don't study history. So their only real context is potentially the financial crisis, maybe the dot-com crisis. But, you know, we were just talking, you and I were just talking about the fact that on Sunday was the 25th anniversary of long-term capital management, which was the first failure that started the whole bailout process of too big to fail long-term capital management in 1998 feds hiking rates um this was a a a hedge fund for lack of a better term two Nobel laureates and a bond trader got together and they were taking on massive leverage um and an ex-fed chairman and an ex-fed chairman i forgot uh, about vice that chairman, vice chair i'm sorry yeah that's right i forgot about that um, but taking on massive amount of leverage uh, and, and doing great. They were making 
40% returns until the Fed hiked rates and completely, you know, threw their their model out of whack. And this was a hundred billion dollar, sorry, a hundred million dollar failure. And the Fed had to step in and, and bail it out. Now we talk about billions upon billions of dollars like it's left pocket change. But back then, $100 million was going to bring the financial markets to the, 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 the brink of a crisis. And so the Fed stepped in and organized it through 14 banks, and they bailed out long-term capital management. But that was the beginning of long-term capital management. But going back through history, every time the Fed has hiked rates, with the exception of 1995, which we're going to talk about after the break, there has been some type of economic event. 1994, the Fed's hiking rates. We have a bond market crash. Um, we have the crash in 87 because of portfolio uh, insurance. We have the Orange County bankruptcy. We had the savings and loans crisis. Uh, just uh, this repeatedly, um, Penn National. Uh, just, you know, you go, the further you go back in history, there is every time the Fed has hiked rates, and to Mike's point, there's always a crisis. Again, we don't really recognize the crisis in a lot of cases because it didn't affect us in our lifetime. The financial crisis affected us because we remember that one. But going through history, there is repeated crises every time the Fed goes through a rate hiking campaign, except for 1995. Why was that one different? Because this is the one time that everybody looks to and says, oh, that was the soft landing scenario that the Fed achieved. They hiked rates to get inflation down, but didn't have a recession. But did they? And was it different? We'll come back after the break and talk about that. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so i want to talk about something here that is the kind of the go-to for the interest rates higher for longer crowd and and the economic narrative, so to speak. And when we're talking about, you know, the economy, and this is where the Fed is, and, and, and this is something that the Federal Reserve was talking about here just recently in their FOMC uh, presser as well. Uh, at the presser, Jerome Powell was asked, he says, about the economy, and he said, is the heat that we see in GDP is it really a threat to our ability to get back to 2% inflation? That's going to be the question. And, of course, what he's referring to is the fact that, you know, the, the economic growth this year has been fairly strong uh, in terms of the recent reports. Uh, it, there seems to be kind of an insatiable American consumer. They just can, can you know, they just keep buying stuff despite higher rates they just keep buying more stuff and and we keep seeing strong retail numbers as well and you know we keep looking at these pce numbers and cpi numbers and you know they've been fairly consistent and 
And of course, you know, oil prices go up and a lot of people are now going, well, oil prices are going up. That means inflation goes up. And, and that's not really a, a good analysis. Energy, as we talked about yesterday, only makes up 7% of CPI. And that includes every type of energy, um, not just gasoline, but that's heating oil where Mike lives when it gets cold, um, you know, um, natural gas, all that. Everything that goes into, you know, heating or cooling your home, driving your car, et cetera. That's only 7% of GDP. Housing makes up 30 to 35% of GDP, uh, sorry, sorry, CPI, um, which is a bigger driver for what's going to happen with CPI over the coming months. But importantly, as we talked about, the economy is the key because, so goes the economy, so goes inflation, so goes interest rates. And the, the current consensus is, is that, well, we've seen strong economic growth. The consumer's insatiable. Nothing's going to slow them down. And everything is fine. And as Jerome Powell's talking about, he's, you know, he says the threat to our forecast is this you know, very strong GDP that we've been seeing. And again, they're looking at this lagging data. And so the, the reference that everybody goes to is 1995. Well, in 1995, the Fed was hiking rates and we didn't have a recession. So that was that proverbial soft landing that everybody keeps looking for in this economy. But there's a big difference between what happened in 1995 and where we are today. So first of all, we had the bond market crash in 1994, the Fed's hiking rates. And in 1995, the Fed stops hiking rates and kind of goes flatline at that level for a while. But the reason the economy didn't crash at that point is because we had just gone through a recession in 91, the bond market crashed in 94. So there were things that were weighing on the recovery of GDP, which allowed for the Fed to hike rates and hold them there at a higher level. And importantly, the one big difference between today and 1995 is the inversion of the yield curve. Every time that the Fed has hiked rates and there's been an inversion of the yield curve, there has been a recession and slower economic growth. Only in 1995 did you have a period where the Fed hiked rates and the yield curve did not invert. The yield curve did ultimately invert in 1998. And it started inverting in 98. Of course, we had the recession in 2000. So that's the big difference currently. And here's the, and, and here's the trap, again, as, as Mike and I were just talking about, and I'm going to let Mike weigh in on this. But again, there's about to be a negative revision to GDP. We're about to restart student loan payments in three days. And interest rates are going up, weighing on consumption. As excess savings continue to erode, Mike just recently wrote an article about what's going on with excess savings as well. Those are evaporating very quickly. So the risk to the Fed, and again, they're, they're, they're pushing out projections saying, hey, you know, we're going to keep rates higher for longer because economic growth is strong. That's fine. But that's going to change as soon as the economic data changes. And when, that, and, and when all of a sudden that backward-looking data is revised – that's going to change the tenor of the Fed very quickly. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, and I also think the other problem with GDP, more so now than, in, than we've seen in the last 10, 20 years, is inflation. Now, the Fed and, and the markets all look at what's called real GDP. So that's GDP less the rate of inflation. But inflation is impossible to put a number on. 
there is no inflation number for the country. Everyone consumes different items. Every region of the country has different prices. Everyone's tastes are different. So put away this notion that anyone can calculate inflation. What we do know are inflation trends. We know whether prices in general are rising or falling. And we have a rough idea on what that rate is. But, you know, if the Fed says it, if the BLS says it's 4%, it could be 2.5% or it could be 6%. Could be more, could be less, right? The price of oil and in, in, uh, of gasoline in California is six, seven bucks a gallon now. By you, Lance, it's 350. But, but the CPI and the PCE all use the same one price. Right. So, so this whole notion that we know what inflation is, is wrong. So then you take GDP and let's just say it's 5%. You subtract a rate of inflation. Let's say it's 3%. That gets you 2% real GDP growth. Well, inflation may have been just kind of 1%, may have been 4%. So I think now that we're in this period of higher inflation, which even though we can't put a number on it, we know that inflation is higher, decently higher than it's been prior to the last couple of years. Might it be that the real inflation rate is higher than what PCE and CPI are telling us? Therefore, it's inflating or they're not deflating the GDP number enough, making it look stronger than it is. Now, Lance, I'm not saying that the economy is weak. We know it's strong. Mm -hmm. We can look at employment data. We can look at all kinds of data. The economy is doing well, but maybe it's just not quite as strong as anyone thinks it is because of that inflation. So as this inflation starts to come out of the system, and like you said, shelter is over a third shelter, which is basically rent whether it's actual rents or they impute rents from house prices is basically flat year over year. It's just taking time for the for the calculations that the BLS and the BEA to to produce the PCE takes them takes them months for that for that to work its way into their formulas. So I would argue that inflation is already lower than we think it is. And that's being put into that's being used in the GDP calculations. So, again, I think this will catch up over time. It's it's not something that's never going to happen. But, uh, you know, we can really question what GDP is, especially when we see GDI diverging pretty rapidly. Right. And again, you know, we we've you know consistently seen this in the past and you know the fed is always overly optimistic in their you know assumptions and they always have to revise them down in the future so you know we'll see this again right you know we'll we'll see in a year from now that you know you know the fed recently just came out and and their recent projections and they upgraded gdp growth to 2.1% and we may find out tomorrow that gdp growth wasn't 2.1 it was 1.5 um you know we'll find out tomorrow but you know by this time next year we may look back and say, oh, GDP growth wasn't 2.1%. It was 1.1%, you know, something something drastically different. But this is always the case. And very much kind of like Wall Street analysts with earnings are always kind of overly optimistic. And then they get guided down in the future. And we'll, we'll see the same thing as we go through each Fed meeting and they put out these projections. We're likely going to start seeing these kind of negative revisions to that data as they kind of guide it down to what reality is going to be. And, and, and again, you know, we'll... We'll know when we get there, and again, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But it seems to me, though, that the risk that they're running and and has always been the problem 
is this expectation, and again, like with J.P. Morgan saying we go to 7% you know, in the Fed funds rate, maybe, but if that happens, the economic devastation, um, not just to mainstream America, but to the financial system, is going to be pretty dramatic. Again, if, if, if at 4% and 4.5% rates, we were having a regional bank crisis there on collateral issues, what's it going to look like at 7 and the housing market is already shut down except for new homes. Right. What's going to happen there? Yeah. And that's and, and you know, like CPI, like uh, like shelter is a third of CPI. It's also a big chunk of GDP. And it's not just the houses selling. It's when you buy a house, you go to Home Depot, you go to the decorator, you, you do all kinds of spend all kinds of money on a house. And even I've had my house 20 more than 25 years. I'm still at Home Depot all the time. I'm still spending money on my house. So the house is a very important part of the economy. And if no houses are moving, I mean, very few houses are moving, then you're going to have an economic problem. And that has proven out throughout throughout the last 30, 40 years that housing is a big part of the economy, as is employment. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll, we'll definitely see. When we come back from the break, I want to switch gears, talk a little bit about the market. Market's had a tough week, um, kind of what's going on with it, and potentially what is the outlook here as we move forward. We'll talk about that with Michael Leibowitz right after the break. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com so it's been a pretty tough week for the market so far and uh you know, we had kind of talked about this and uh, we wrote an article on this um, last week, actually last Tuesday, talking about more weakness uh, before we start to see a market rally. And uh, it's certainly been a tough week. Market uh, futures are down this morning. Uh, S&P's down about seven and a half. Uh, Nasdaq's down about 50 and Dow's down about 19 right now. Yields up a little bit on bonds again. Um, you know, and, and you know, but there's not really been a lot of news to drive the markets. Earnings have been kind of uh, drifting in at the moment, just the last few remnants. Costco yesterday, I believe we have Nike today, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, Nike, CarMax, uh, Vail Resorts, and Blueberry, uh, BlackBerry today. Uh, they should change their name to Blueberry. It'd be better. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, not a lot of stuff driving the markets at the moment. And again, it's a lot of the liquidation that we've seen certainly kind of smacks of 
kind of quarter end year, fiscal year end again about 20 as we said earlier in the show today about 20 percent of mutual funds hedge funds etc have their fiscal year end this week uh, so for window dra- uh, window dressing portfolio rebalancing reporting purposes um, that's one thing also the market kind of broke some temporary support levels uh, at the 100 day moving average and the 50 day moving average that triggered some selling by these uh, kind of automated uh, programs, what they call systemic funds that are just technical based. So when uh, stocks break certain levels, it just automatically triggers selling within, you know, bond stocks, whatever it is. And so it certainly has seemed to be a lot of that kind of, you know, programmic, I guess that's the word, uh, selling that's been going on. Um, but again, markets are now very oversold. And, you know, this is always the big conundrum for investors is that when markets are going down, nobody wants to buy anything. And that's exactly the kind of the time that you've got to step up and say, I know nobody else wants to buy something, but I've got to buy something here because this is when you want to buy. You know, you, you want to buy when nobody else wants to buy something. You want to sell stuff when nobody else wants to sell. And, and so just, you know, this is always kind of the, the hard challenge. This recent correction is something we've been talking about since July. And we talked about in July that a 3 to 5 to a 10% correction, completely normal within any given year. And you should have expected the correction, given the markets were up 15% from February to, to June, actually July, where, where the markets peaked. So if you have a 15% run in five months, you should expect a correction. And so the correction we're getting is very normal within the context of any given year where you've had such a big run. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the next bear market has started. It's likely an opportunity that the markets are going to bounce here um, and doesn't necessarily mean that we're starting the next leg of the great bull market either. But you are set up here, both sentiment-wise, positioning-wise, um, technically uh, speaking, you're in a very good position here for this market to bounce here at least for a couple of months. And then what happens then? Um, and, you know, kind of what's happening at the time when we get to the end of this rally will tell us kind of what is going to potentially happen next. Could this be the last hurrah before we get into a much weaker market environment going into next year, the onset of the recession? Absolutely. Um, it is not uncommon for stocks to rally right into a recession. And so this is kind of where we are and kind of what we've been looking at this week. Mike, what are your thoughts? I kind of think about the old saying, price drives narrative. So price, prices move and technicals help us understand where prices are. Are they too overbought, too oversold? Are they near resistance or support? How are they trending? What kind of momentum, relative strength? And those changes in price, which are unpredictable is a big word, but you can get a good idea of where things are potentially going with technicals, drives the narrative. So as stock prices have been going down, as bond yields have been going up, the narratives in both markets have been getting worse. Like, you know, stocks are just going to keep going down. This is it. And bond yields are just going to keep going up. They, they kind of ignore fundamentals and uh, you know, so it makes it really hard because you have these headlines, you have social media, you have the media barking about the market going down and it's not good. And here's and they tend to point out the bad things. You know, you got your 
the government's potentially going to shut down in a couple of days. I, you know, is that really a bad thing? Historically, it hasn't been a bad thing for the market. The Treasury is issuing all kinds of debt. They're flooding the market with debt. Yes, their debt issuance is very high. But if you really look, a lot of it is coming in the short end of the curve. At the same time, the Fed's repo facility is dropping pretty quickly. So it's kind of absorbing that issuance. Is Japan selling bonds? Maybe, but the dollar keeps going up. If Japan was really selling a lot of bonds, it would be hard for the dollar to keep going up. Mm -hmm. Crude oil, you talked about it earlier. It's at 90, what, 95 a barrel now? It's going to go to 120, 140, obviously, because that's what everyone's <laughs> saying. But you pull up a graph. You know, when you were talking about that in the first segment, I yeah. pulled up a graph of crude oil and recessions. And sure enough, every time you get a spike in crude oil, you pretty much get a recession. Uh, or and, and, oil prices, and, and by the way, when you have that recession, oil prices come down because of the slowdown in economic demand. Right, right. So, you know, it's very easy to focus on the narr narrative, but the narrative is the second thought. That's what comes after the price. So what, what we really want to know and what everyone should want to know is, well, what's tomorrow's narrative? In other words, what's going to be the price changes for the next 30 days, the next 90 days? And the narrative will then adapt to it. And, you know, it, it makes it that's what makes investing so hard. Right now we have so many asset classes, stocks, bonds, oil, the dollar, probably gold. I haven't looked at it are trading at extreme readings, some extremely overbought, some extremely oversold. And they don't trade at those kind of readings for very long. So we are due for a bounce in stock prices and bond prices for a drop in the dollar and crude oil. Doesn't mean it happens today, but within the next week, we can expect a reversal of recent trends. And then again, like you said, Lance, is mm -hmm. are those reversals uh, you know, three weeks, six weeks in nature. Will they go through quarter and through next, you know, through the end of the year? You know, but that's that's a story for another day. Yeah. And again, you know, this is, you know, what's always important. And, and this is something just as investors is you've always got to be careful of a, a, a friend of mine called Doug Cass, who runs uh, a hedge fund. He uh, writes for you know real money and has been around the markets for about a bajillion years. Uh, he has a term he calls group stink, which is that, you know, when you listen to the media, they all think the same way. And and, to, and this is exactly to Mike's point, is that when prices are doing something, everybody starts assuming that this means something and that everybody starts thinking that, well, this can only go in one direction. And, it's, and this is the new direction that's going to last this way forever. And so everybody gets wrapped up in this group stink think, right? Everybody's thinking the same thing. And his important point is, is that you've got to do what's, and, and this was a term from Howard Marks, who runs Oak Tree Capital Management, talking about second level thinking, which is thinking what the next step is going to be. So if everybody is thinking one thing, what is going to be, you know, where do you need to be thinking? It's almost like playing a, you know, 3D chess, right? So if everybody's doing one thing and everybody's thinking one thing, you've got to be thinking about the next move on the chessboard and starting to place your bets there. You know, as Wayne Gretzky, you know, said, you know, said, you know, you know, skate to where the puck's going to be, not where it is, because that's what the markets are going to go to next. And so this is the, but to Mike's point, this is a very challenging thing 
in the midst of the moment, while the markets are doing one thing, being a contrarian investor, which Mike and I are, is very difficult. And it looks like you're wrong. But over the long term, there are things that just by the very nature of how economics work are going to inure to a thesis that suggests that you're going to have a, a different outcome than what everybody currently expects at the moment. And this is always the problem with the crowd. The crowd's right in the middle. They're always wrong on both ends. So, you know, where are we right now? Are we in the middle of a trend? Yeah, probably. Are we getting close to the end of that trend? Yeah, probably. And wherever the, the majority of the mainstream media is, is they're going to be wrong at that point. And this is where you've got to start thinking about that next level. So, Mike, uh, we'll get ready to wrap up the show. Any closing thoughts? Yeah, narratives are very compelling. But again, price is what we need to focus on, on in technicals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, be sure you get by the website. Mike's got a new article out uh, that came out yesterday talk, talking basically a little bit about a crisis coming and to see who's swimming naked. It's an old Warren Buffett um, aphorism, which is, you know, everybody finds out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. And that's kind of to the same point is that, you know, as you start thinking about narratives and, you know, what everybody is saying and, and this is even people that we perceive to be very, very smart. Um, J.P. Morgan, uh, Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan. Oh, rates have to go to 7%. Don't forget, he is an owner of the Federal Reserve. So to Mike's point, you know, he has a potential for a narrative here that may or may not come true at some point. And again, Jamie's made a lot of statements in the past that have not come true. So you got to be careful about who you listen to and do your own homework is always the important thing. But Mike's article on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, we've got an article coming out tomorrow about the Fed projections, uh, inverted yield curves, what that means. That's all coming out tomorrow on the website as well. Of course, this weekend's newsletter talking about, well, why we're probably about to get a rally. That's all going to be on, on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get by there. Of course, send us your questions, comments, emails, whatever we can do to help. Always happy to do that. And please make sure and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Click the little like button and uh, hit the bell icon so we'll always notify you when our uh, videos go out. That's all on our YouTube channel. We appreciate you viewing and appreciate you following. And we'll see you next time.